Woo, that was awesome. Good morning, see me church. I want to welcome you to our service this morning. My name is Joe Collins. Our mission is to love both God and people. It's been a little while since I've spoken to you. It's great to be back. It's nice to take a little break, though, and I'm sure you were encouraged by the different guest speakers we got to hear from. Last time I was up, I was doing my series, Jesus Worth Following, and we talked about fear and how fear can really negatively affect our faith. I mean, it certainly affected Peter's faith there in the courtyard of the, of the high priest, and, and that, that same effect of fear can, can affect our faith. But what I want to talk about today is responsibility. But I want to talk about responsibility, the kind of responsibility that actually leads to faith. So I got to tell you a story about Bob. Bob was having a rough time, got fired from his last job, been out of work for a while. You know, the economy was difficult and he was having a hard time finding work, but then the economy's been turning around and he started putting resumes out there and and, uh, he finally got an interview. So he went to the interview and he sat down. I mean, he prepared, he dressed nice, he did all the right things you're supposed to do at an interview, make eye contact, repeat the questions back. You know, talk to the person who asked you the question, all the, all the little P's and Q's that you got to do at, a, at an interview. And he was nailing it. I mean, he was doing great. But, you know, Bob wasn't the brightest guy. He was a little slow. And so at the end of the interview, he got asked a question. The interview said, well, Bob, things are, seem to be going well here, but I got to tell you, the thing we're looking for, the thing that we're most concerned about is, is you got to be someone who's responsible. Well, Bob was like, oh, I'm your guy. The interviewer said, what do you mean? He goes, at my last job, every time something went wrong, they all said I was responsible. (laughs) So Bob wasn't the brightest guy. But, you know, he may not have known why he was responsible, but at least he was willing to take responsibility. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We pray for your spirit now to speak to each and every one of us through your word. Help us to be inspired by what we read and really come to a new understanding, a greater understanding of what it means to be a person of faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to read in Mark chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now, most of us have been through this series. We've been doing it for a long time now. We've been going through the book of Mark very methodically, place to place, learning what Jesus did and what what we can apply to our lives. Well, we're in the last days of Jesus' life. As a matter of fact, we're in the last hours now of Jesus' life. And this whole series of events that that we're going to talk about today really began right about here. This is where most scholars think the location was of the upper room. This was about Thursday night. Jesus had the last supper with his disciples. They left the upper room, and if you follow the arrow, they went through the city, through the temple, out into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus spent quite some time in in very, very intense prayer. And it was sometime late, late Thursday night, there in the garden, that he was arrested. And they took him, if you follow the arrow, over to Caiaphas' house which is right about there. This was the high priest 
of the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin had gathered there. That was kind of like the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. And they tried Jesus and found him guilty of blasphemy. So this trial went on in the middle of the night, very late, all the way into early Friday morning. And so we pick up the story now, early in the morning, probably before sunrise, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, they got everybody together and they said, okay, we need to come up with a plan. We have convicted Jesus of blasphemy, but we technically under Roman rule are not allowed to execute a sentence on him. We're not allowed to execute him because blasphemy was a sentence, was a, was a punishable by death, but they were not allowed to do that under Roman rule. The Romans took that responsibility. The problem was, is the Romans could care less about blasphemy. That meant nothing to them. All they cared about was things like treason or not paying your taxes. So really what's happened here is the Sanhedrin, they had to come up with a reason for why Pilate, who was the Roman governor, would have any interest in putting Jesus to death. And most scholars will tell you that that's what this is about. They took him to Pilate because that's where they had to go under Roman rule to get a a conviction of death, and then the Romans would carry out the execution, typically crucifixion. But I I find it interesting that the, the Jews didn't always follow that protocol. A couple years before this, Jesus was doing his public ministry, and they brought a woman, the the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, brought a woman who was caught in adultery to him, and they were going to stone her right there in the streets. Now, Jesus stopped them. But what's interesting is they had no intention of bringing her to Pilate. They passed judgment. A little bit after this time, seven to ten years later, one of the followers of Jesus, after Jesus had actually been killed and resurrected and all that, and his movement spread, one of his followers, a man named Stephen, was convicted by these same people of blasphemy, and they just stoned him right then and there. They didn't take him to Pilate. So, little audience participation. What might be the reason? Why, in Jesus' case, was it so important that they would get their ducks in a row and get him to Pilate, when in other cases, sometimes they just acted on impulse and murdered people right then and there, carried out judgment? Why? My They wanted to make a public spectacle, so they really wanted to go big. Yeah. They were afraid to execute Jesus because they might, would have created a revolt, mm-hmm. and Roman would find out that they did an outright execution, they were all in trouble. Yeah. Well, one more. Yeah. They, they were afraid of a riot because um, uh, the people were believing in Jesus, and they'd be caught in catch 22 if they Yeah. There was fear, I'm repeating for the recording, there was fear that doing this in public would cause a revolt because the people love Jesus, right? So we have these different ideas. We're speculating. It doesn't, it's not spelled out for us, but we're in the ballpark. It's okay to, to speculate within, within certain boundaries here. And I think either option, there's, you could look at it from many different ways, but I, I do think in following this story so closely as we have over the past, past few weeks, that They were seriously concerned about the people, about the crowd. Remember, it's Passover, and Jerusalem is swollen five, six, seven times its size. Hundreds of thousands of people are there, and many of them, just days ago, were praising Jesus' name publicly as he entered into the city. 
They were calling, you know, praising God and calling Jesus their Messiah. And they were loving what he was doing. And if you remember from previous lessons, the, the, the chief priests, the, the, the same group of people here, wanted Jesus dead for some time, but they couldn't figure out how to do it out of the public eye. And so their original plan was to wait till Passover was over, till the festival of unleavened bread was over, all the pilgrims left, and then they would snatch Jesus when no one was looking. But then they got uh, an unsuspected surprise. One of Jesus' own followers, Judas, offered to give him up. And he offered to give him up at night in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew Jesus would be alone or only with his disciples and the crowds would be in bed. They'd be out of the city, camped out all around Jerusalem or in various towns, sleeping. And so... That advanced their plans. That accelerated their plans. They said, great, let's get him. So they snatched him at night, rushed him over to Caiaphas, had this trial at his house with only his supporters, only Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin supporters. They, they came to their decision, and now they wanted to get over to Rome, give it over to Pilate, and let Pilate do the dirty work. And then, when people woke up, morning came, and People flowed back into the city. All of a sudden, the next thing they know, Jesus is arrested already. Rome's got him, and they're ready to ex- they're beginning to execute him. And in some ways, the Sanhedrin could go, well, we don't know what happened. Rome got him. There was an element here of blame shifting, of trying to avoid responsibility, of trying not to make it look like they were behind this. You know, it's an interesting thing, I think, about human nature, but we love to blame others for our mistakes. We do this. I've done it. You've done it. It's, it's common among us. You know, we get caught red-handed and we try to figure out some way to say, well, it wasn't really me. It was someone else. And that happens when it comes to church. Hey, come to church with me. Oh, whoa. I've been hurt before. Right? You know, it's, it's someone else's problem. I, I don't go to church because of someone else. Or, well, you know, church is full of hypocrites. Right? We love to blame shift. We love to make it someone else's responsibility. Now, you and I might think we're getting off the hook, and I think the Sanhedrin might have thought, hey, we got the perfect plan here. We're going we're to come out looking good here. But God never lets us get away with that. And the Sanhedrin's going to find out that he's not going to let them get away with it either. Verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked them, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists and had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them, crucify him. They shouted, why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We know from the other Gospels, specifically the Gospel of Luke, that that, uh, there was more to this story. 
Mark's giving us the, the cliff notes, the, the, quick, the quick overview. But what actually happened is early in the morning, that was when Pilate, the Romans like to get up early and they get their stuff done. That's where maybe I get it as an Italian, I don't know. But we get up early, we like to get stuff done and be done with the day, and then I think they probably drank the rest of the day. <laughs> so Pilate liked to have his trials in the morning. The Jews got up before sunlight. They got their plans, their ducks in a row. They figured out, okay, we're going to charge him with this, this, and this. They know blasphemy is not going to matter to Pilate. So they come up with treason, basically, is what they come up with. He won't pay his taxes. He's starting, uh, he's subverting Rome, and he claims to be a king. In other words, we got a, tra we got a traitor here. They knew that would get Pilate's attention. So they rushed Jesus over to Pilate. First thing, daylight, people haven't come into the city yet. The, 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 pilgrimers, the, the pilgrimagers are still sleeping. The city's kind of slowly coming awake. They're trying to get this done, get a quick conviction, get a quick sentence, and then Jesus is out of their hair. No one knows the wiser. But according to Luke, Pilate actually doesn't do anything at first. He interviews Jesus and doesn't really know what to do with him. Even though there were people there standing there saying, this guy's a tra traitor, he's treasonous, he's an insurrectionist, and many other things I'm sure they were trying to say, Pilate wasn't so convinced. And so Pilate says, hey, there's a guy named Herod Antipas, who's the governor of Judea, which is where Jesus was basically from, the northern part of Palestine, where Rome, uh, Jerusalem's down here in the southern part of Palestine, in an area called Judea, Jesus was actually from Galilee, the northern part of Palestine. Well, the leader, the, the governor of Galilee, happened to be in Rome at this time. I mean, in Jerusalem at this time. And he was staying nearby. So Pilate said, hey, let's send him over to Herod. Maybe Herod knows what to do. So Jesus goes over to Herod. The accusers go with him. They accuse Jesus of all kinds of things in front of Herod. Jesus doesn't even talk to Herod. He doesn't say a word to him. Herod, for his part, just wants to see Jesus do a miracle because he had heard about him. But Jesus does nothing. So Herod's like, I don't know what to do, and sends him back to Pilate. So he goes back to Pilate. Pilate interviews him again. Pilate's like, I can't find anything wrong with him. Then Pilate's wife runs in and says, hey, leave that guy alone. I had a dream. And Pilate's like, okay. And so... What I'm trying to point out to you is that the clock is ticking this entire time. And the Sanhedrin is getting more and more nervous because the sun is coming up. People are starting to trickle into the city. Their whole plan was predicated on a quick conviction and a quick execution. Get him over, get it out with, before anybody was the wiser. But it's now like dragging on. We got to go to Herod. Now we got to go back to Pilate. Pilate interviews twice. Pilate's waffling. Pilate doesn't know what to do. Pilate was not a nice guy. They were not known for their civility, these guys. It's very out of character for Pilate to be like, I'm not sure what to do with this guy. I really believe God was driving the accusers crazy. He was slow playing this. And you can see, you can read it in the text. The tension is increasing. They're, they're like, we got to get this done. And oh my goodness, people are coming in. And it's just, it's just dragging on and dragging on. We got to go over here. We got to go back here. And why won't he make a decision? And their whole plan is starting to fall apart. You ever have plans fall apart? You ever feel that? 
tension and that anxiety. I mean, we're, we're starting church this morning and we're, we're trying to figure out how to get the thing to stop strobe lighting over there. And during service, I'm up there taping things together. I mean, it's anxiety creating. And that's just this. I mean, imagine you're trying to get somebody wrongly convicted and you got a whole plan and you could get exposed. I mean, you could imagine the pressure that they began to feel as this thing just dragged and dragged and dragged. God was behind it. He was not going to let them blame shift. He was not going to let them put this on someone else. So eventually Pilate, knowing that the Jews had this tradition where during Passover, a criminal, a Jewish prisoner basically would get released. And if you read between the lines, you get the sense that they expected it to be Barabbas from the beginning. It wasn't really a choice. Barabbas was probably the guy they wanted to begin with because the whole Jesus thing was kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a sudden plan. It sort of propped up. It wasn't like they had this all along that Jesus was there. And so the people gather around, a crowd gathers around waiting for Barabbas to get released, right? And Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was an anti-Roman. And so, you know, they're there ready to, you know, they're fired up. They're getting one of their guys back. And Pilate almost comically, almost sarcastically says to the crowd with the Sanhedrin standing there, how about I release Jesus instead? You can imagine the Sanhedrin like, no, no, wait, wait, no, no, we can't let that happen. I mean, this will blow everything. So they start telling the crowd, hey, hey, Jesus is a traitor. He's a Roman sympathizer, whatever. They're saying whatever they can say to get that crowd on their side. Barabbas's fans on their side. And so they get them on their side. And then the crowd starts saying, no, 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 kill Jesus. And Pilate's like, why? What crime has he committed? And here it is. God made him say it. Crucify him. What crime has he committed? Crucify him. And there it is. God would not let them off the hook. They had to own this choice. It was theirs and theirs alone to make. They tried to blame shift. They tried to avoid responsibility. They tried to give it to everyone else they could possibly give it to. But God held them responsible, made them say it. You ever been in that moment where you're just forced to admit you're wrong? There's just nowhere else to go. You've tried to avoid it. And now the, you know, the chickens have come home to roost. There's no, there's nowhere to turn. You're just stuck. I'm going to embarrass my son Kelly. When he was very little, he was in a private school and they had this whole system. You'd pick him up from school and you had to drive through the thing, you know, like the playground, and you could like stop for two seconds, kid get in. You know, it was a way to make everything go faster. You pick up your kid. So Kelly gets in and he jumps in the front seat, which he's too little to be in the front seat at that time. And I go, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I can sit here. And I go, really, you can? He's like, yeah, I, I can sit here. And he's like, and I go, no, you can't. You have to get in the back. There's a car seat. You got to get in the car seat or, you know, booster seat or whatever it was at the time. And he's like, no, no, no. My teacher said it was okay. I go, really? Your teacher said it was okay. He goes, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. She said, okay. I go, really? Which teacher? And he goes, oh, oh, she's not, she's not here. She, she went in the back in the room. I go, really? What was her name? Oh, uh, 
Miss so-and-so. Miss so-and-so, she actually said, you can say, that's interesting. You know what? Put it in park, turn the key off. I'm like, I'm going to go talk to her. Kelly goes, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> just give me the spank. <laughs> at least he could take responsibility at a young age, right? I mean, he just owned the choice. Just give me the spank. These guys were trying to avoid that responsibility and they, God was just not going to let them. But here's, here's the leap. Here's the leap we got to make. The same is true for you and I. God holds every one of us responsible for this decision, for this result. We are all responsible. Now, I know what you're thinking. And I'm glad that the high school and the junior high and everybody's in today because I, I really think that we're going to learn something here that's going to give you so much encouragement on how to, how to share this with your friends. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I wasn't there. I didn't do this. Why am I guilty? Why does God hold me responsible for this? Little audience participation. Why might you think you're responsible? How is that possible? Yeah. So it's our sins, you know, our sins, uh, and Jesus wanted to have a plan for We're sinners. There's got to be atonement. This is the plan. That's the way it is. Okay? Yeah. So even after we know something's wrong, we keep doing it. Well, now we're totally responsible. Okay? Anyone else? Yeah? Interesting. Wow. We're going to talk about that. Those are all really good answers. But what's interesting about those answers, with the exception of Ruth, is they're sort of inside baseball. Those are answers that Christians know. And we learn them. When we become Christians, we understand that we're sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. There has to be an atonement for our sin. We know that because our heritage comes from the Judeo-Christian heritage, the Jewish heritage of the sacrificial system, that when you did something wrong, an animal had to be sacrificed to atone for your sin. And this whole, this whole uh, theology and understanding is all there, and we can stand on it, and we're convinced of it, and it makes sense, and it's convicting, and it's all true, and it's right. But what about an uninitiated person? What about someone who doesn't have a connection to that? I mean, this was new at the time. Jesus wasn't viewed as the Son of God by everybody at this point. So, so what is the connection there? How do we make that leap from them to us? And how do we make it make sense to an uninitiate, to someone without the context, without the background? I'm going to share a story. Last week, I was up in Bakersfield t- preaching to the church up there, and they invite me up maybe once a year. I have friends up there, and they don't have a minister right now. They're in the process of trying to find someone, and it's a great tr- church, very small, good group of people, um, and I'm good friends with one of the couples, sort of the pillar couple there. Their name is Blaine and Eve. Incredibly nice people. Hunter and I have hunted with Blaine. He's a great guy, and uh, we were having lunch after church. I'm going to share this with you because you, you helped pay for the lunch, so thank you. But I offered, 
I offered to encourage the church because they've been having a rough time. So I treated the whole church to lunch. Not a lot of people. We went and got a bunch of pizza. So thank you for giving me permission to do something like that, the freedom to do something like that. And thank you on behalf of the Bakersfield Church. They were really encouraged that we could just go up. A couple hundred bucks made their day. So we're there having pizza. And Eve, who's really a sweet lady, she's holding her grandbaby. Their son is there. And I think the grandbaby's just a little over a year. And the grandbaby, you ever, you know, you see this, right? The baby's just out. Like, it's an old enough to walk, I think. I can't remember, maybe a year, year and a half. And it's just out on Eve. It just, just the entire lunch didn't move, just like in heaven. Just come. And Eve, Eve is just like glowing. She's like an angel. She's just holding her grandbaby. She loves her grandbaby. I think of Anthony. A very dear friend to many of us who we've almost lost a couple of times. <laughs> but I see him with his granddaughter, Chris and Jessica's baby, Savannah. And you didn't, if you didn't know, you would think it's his daughter. <laughs> In fact, Kristen and Jessica have to tell him she's our daughter. Because <laughs> he loves his grandbaby. My mom is a great grandma now. Two great grandkids. And every chance she gets, it's like, give me the baby. You know, let me hold the baby. My daughter, Sophia, goes crazy because every chance I get, I want to hug her. And she's like, leave me alone. <laughs> I'm like, no. And now we have a dog that's her dog, and the dog bites me every time I try to hug her, and Sophie loves it. So when I hug Sophie, she goes, help, 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 and the dog runs and bites me. <laughs> but I don't care. I'm going to hug my daughter. I love my daughter. We love our grandkids. We love our great-grandkids. And if we didn't get old, if we didn't get sick, to Ruth's point, if we didn't age out, that would never change. We would never stop loving the next generation, the next baby. It doesn't matter, grandkid, great-grandkid, child, great-great-grandkid. On and on it goes. I can't imagine Gerardo not loving his great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids. And if he could stay healthy, he probably will. The rest and live for several generations. He would, he would hug and love every baby that comes along. And so it is with God. God loves every generation. And he's eternal. He doesn't die. So he doesn't get old and tired. And so every new generation is like Eve holding the grandbaby. He loves every one of them. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Acts. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times and histories, the boundaries of their lands. He did this so that they would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from everyone, any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." What's happening here? This is the Apostle Paul. He became a follower of Jesus long after Jesus died and resurrected. And Paul went into the city of Athens, a pagan city. No Jewish real context. No, no uh, sacrificial system. No, no, no Judeo ethic. None of that. 
In fact, it was so pagan that they had gods to every known god that they could think of. There was a hill where they built temples and idols to every god. And every time Rome expanded and took a new person, they'd find a new people, they'd find a new god, and then they'd build an altar to it. Because they just wanted, their philosophy was, let's cover them all. Right? And so there was all these gods, and Paul walked into the city, and he was distressed, he was bothered. He saw this, like, man, these people are so off, they don't know what's going on. And then he saw a temple dedicated to the unknown god. So just in case we missed a god, we got him covered. <laughs> so Paul sees that, and he goes, let me tell you about that god. He's talking to people without a context. They don't know the inside baseball. They don't have the theology. Much like the people at junior high school or in high school or in college or the people you work with, we like to think we're a Christian nation. But we're not. We have a, we have a sense of it. We have a postcard view of it. But most people, they don't have the depth. And so to try to appeal to people on that level, to try to explain the inside baseball and the technicalities of how it all works out and why sacrifice matters and on and on it goes, you're just gonna, their eyes are gonna roll into the back of their head. They don't, they don't get that yet. And so Paul, when he's talking to the, the people at, in Athens at the Arapagus, or whatever, they can't even pronounce that word, <clears throat> but it was a place where people could come and give speeches. He begins by telling them the story of the unknown God who is actually the only true God, who's the creator of all things, who lives forever, and is a father. We're his offspring. He paints a very different picture of, an, of what they would have thought God is. They think of God as impersonal, like the, like the Greek and Roman gods. They were flawed crazy, chaotic, did random things, had no real personal connection or love for the creation. Other pagan gods were much like that. Think of King Kong. When you think of pagan gods outside of Christianity, and this is true even of some of the bigger religions outside of Judeo-Christian ethic, God is a lot like King Kong. You have to appease him. So you got to take the, the pure woman and tie her up on a stake so, as a sacrifice so he doesn't come and eat everybody else. That's their concept. It's not a love. It's not a relationship. It's not a father to his children. And that's what we are running into every day in the people we interact with. They don't get that context yet. It's not there. So Paul starts big. Hey, there's a God out there. He's actually the greatest of all the gods. In fact, there are no other gods. He's the only God. And by the way, he created everybody and everything. He lives forever and he's a father. And by the way, even your own poets make reference to this. We're his offspring. So the starting point of any conversation with someone without a context is that God is a father and he cares. Look what Paul goes on to say. This is... This, this insight, I, I was meditating on that question, how could I be responsible? And then this jumped off the page at me. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given us proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, 
But others said, we want to hear you again. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the members, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus. This is a Greek, non-Jewish person, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman, Damaris, another Greek, and a number of others. So this, this, this message of God being a father resonated. But did you catch the most important thing, the thing that jumped off the page that I've never noticed before in that story? I mean, many of us have been in the church. We've read this a lot, if you're familiar with it. I've read it a lot, and I never caught it. He says we should not think that the divine being, this eternal God, this eternal Father, is like gold or silver or stone. What is he saying? He's telling these people that God has feelings. He's personal. He's relational. He, he cares about his creation. It's not, a, it's not a game of monopoly to him. It's not a game of risk. As a matter of fact, every generation is like a whole new batch of children to him that he loves and cares for and, the, and puts them where they are going to be at their best possible place because he wants them to reach out and know him. He's not an idol. He's not a piece of metal. He's not a stone. He's feelings. He's emotional. He cares. He loves. And it's precisely because he loves. Like a father loves that he holds you and me responsible for what happened to Jesus. Because Jesus was his son. If I tried to take Eve's grandbaby from her, there would be repercussions. <laughs> Eve is not someone to trifle with. There would be a consequence. Now you and I, your friends at school can say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't crucify Jesus. I didn't put him on the cross. I didn't, I didn't do that. Yeah, you didn't. I agree, and neither did I. But I have denied him. I have disrespected him. I have disobeyed him. I have disregarded him. I have offended him. And God cares about his son. That bothers God, the Father. He loves his son, and he cares about how we treat his son. And all of us, there's not one person in this room that is not guilty of mistreating Jesus in some way. And so we're responsible. He holds us accountable for our actions. And he says... He overlooked it for a while. Boy, thank God for that. But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance begins with admission. Admitting that we've done something wrong. That we have failed, that we have faltered, that we've purposely disregarded, whatever the case may be, 
but we have done something wrong. And that's where faith starts. If we were to come up with the ABCs of salvation, it would be admit you've done something wrong. It would be believe in Jesus the Son. And it would be covenant with God. Make a relationship with Him. Return to the Father. Restore the connection. If I lived for a long time and I had multiple great-great-great-great-grandkids and somebody wronged one of them, I would be just as upset as if you wronged my own child and I would expect responsibility to be taken and actions to be done to repair it. And Paul uses this word repent. And let me define the word repentance. It's not a change of behavior. Repentance is a change of perspective that leads to behavior change. It results in changes in behavior. That's repentance. And it begins with admission. Admitting we've done something wrong. You know, Bob wasn't very bright, was he? But he did take responsibility. That was his saving grace. I want to challenge everyone here to be willing to take responsibility for your part for what you've done wrong. If this is new to you and you'd like to know more, I'm, all, I'm, I'm here. Come and talk to me. If you don't like me, talk to my wife. <laughs> if you don't like me or my wife, talk to the person that brought you out. I don't care, but talk to someone about the idea of admitting, of owning your responsibility. We want to help you with this. We've all been there before where we wandered around not knowing any of this, and now we get it, and so our behaviors have changed, and we want to help you do the same but I have another challenge, and that's for every disciple in this room. Those of you who have done this, you've done the ABCs. You've admitted, you've believed, and you've covenanted. Part of your covenant is to help other people with this. You exist in a world of people that only you can influence. I can show up, and I'll be the weird guy in the room. You can try to get someone else, but there's no connection there. God has purposely put people in your life on purpose, by design, that only you can witness to, that only you can have this conversation with. And I want to challenge every one of you to begin having those conversations. Start the conversation. Get the ball rolling. Maybe you're thinking, well, I only know them a little bit. Well, then take them out to coffee, have a great time, make a connection, and then the next day talk to them. But God has given us a, a call to take this message to the people around us. We're going to close out in a word of prayer. I'm going to have everyone stand. Let's go arm in arm. We're going to pray to our God, our eternal Father in heaven. and give him the honor and the love that he deserves, and then we'll be done. After I pray, I have a question that I have to ask you. We're going to take a vote. Not like Pilate, but we're going to take a vote. 